Welcome to a special episode of Heavy Metal 101. Special topics in metalology number one. The evolution of death. Stunned silence. You can't believe the enthusiasm. All right, so today is the first in an occasional series of special episodes in which we shall briefly shed the confines of our 101 academic designation and push into some considerably more advanced heavy metal territory. For the uninitiated, these episodes will provide you with a fleeting glimpse into the true, beautiful, frightening darkness lying just beyond the horizon. Well, for those of you with more experience, this will give us a chance to get a bit more into the weeds of some particularly serious, esoteric, heavy metal goodness. Today, we will be discussing the extraordinary evolution of arguably the greatest heavy metal band of them all. All hail Chuck Schuldiner and the magnificent, eternal death. I want to particularly thank my partner in crime, John our resident heavy metal novice, for agreeing to take this deep dive into some very choppy waters. John braved an hour-long chronological death <laughs> playlist I made for him, and should clearly be presented with the Congressional Medal of Valor, or perhaps provided with black robes and a nicely engraved inverted crucifix. John! You're my hero. How, how are you feeling about this episode's topic and the work you did to prepare for it? I have heard a lot of music that I did not enjoy in my life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is one of the more memorably unenjoyable musical hours of my life. <laughs> it was like drowning in death metal goodness, right? Uh, or... Drowning is too gentle. I would say it was like having my head smashed against a brick wall of death metal... Evil? Music? Badness? John, I will say this. This this may in fact be the episode in which fisticuffs are involved. I'm sure I'm sure there will be a bit of disagreement between John and I as we discuss this. But I do want to say graciously that I know going in that this is not a quote unquote heavy metal 101 topic or body of work. And so, John, I appreciate you and the fact that you did something that I guarantee there is no chance you would have done otherwise, which is, is listen accurate. to an hour of death. That yes. is accurate. Thank you, John. You're welcome. Mm -hmm. Before we talk about death and the brilliant mastermind behind the band, the great Chuck Schuldiner, let's take a moment to unpack a new term for us here at Heavy Metal 101, extreme metal. Hmm. John, uh, do you have any idea what we mean when we add the adjective extreme to heavy metal? Well, I mean, spe musically specifically, no, but I assume we are taking things in all aspects to the nth degree. Yeah, we defined heavy metal as something like the R-rated version of the PG-13 hard rock, just more extreme in every possible way. Well, now I think we have reached NC-17 or perhaps even X-rated territory as we talk about extreme metal subgenres, the most popular of which, the most important of which, are death metal, which we'll talk about today, and black metal. Let's figure out what we're talking about here. Thus far in our exploration of the early heavy metal of the 1970s, we've just begun to skim the surface of what would become a great fracturing of heavy metal into increasingly specific subgenres. 
Angeles. This begins in the 1980s and just totally explodes in the 1990s and early years of the 21st century. When we met Motorhead in our third episode, we were meeting the founding fathers of one of the first principal subgenres of the 1980s, thrash metal. That is the thread that we are picking up on today. If we were to go one more nasty, grimy rung down the extreme ladder from Motorhead, we would meet the English band Venom and their incredibly influential debut, you'll like this title, Welcome to Hell. Welcome to Hell came out in 1981, and on this album, Venom amped everything Motorhead had done up, and they also, and I, I certainly enjoyed this part, they sprinkle a whole bunch of Satan on top of that. That's uh, a nifty finishing touch that Venom do that sort of uh, adds to the sinister and terrifying quality of this very, very heavy music. It would be perfectly reasonable to call Venom one of the first true thrash bands, but they are also, if Motorhead are the founding fathers of thrash, Venom are really the founding fathers of the two even more visceral subgenres that would emerge later from thrash. That being, as we previously mentioned, black metal and death metal. Now, today's not the day to dig into the roots or differences between these two types of extreme metal. They are different, and fans of one are not necessarily fans of the other. But when we're talking about death, what we are talking about is the development and evolution of death metal. I'm so pumped. John, are you pumped? I am. Uh, yeah, I, you know, here I am. I'm learning new things. Mm -hmm. Those of us who care about this stuff, we are pretty serious about it, and we, we can get into some pretty heated debates about this origin story of death metal. Now, the two primary candidates for the quote-unquote first death metal albums are the San Francisco Bay Area-based band Possessed, who, fun fact, featured a very young guitarist by the name of Larry Lalonde. Uh, are you familiar with Primus? I am. Yeah, that's the guitarist for Primus. Oh, look at that. I know. You know all those crazy dissonant, like, atonal guitar solos he used to do? Yeah. Those come out of death metal. Oh. Yeah, and then nice, go Larry Lavonde. Their debut from 1985 was Seven Churches, and it's an album that included a song titled Death Metal. A lot of people, justifiably, will point to this as the first death metal album. It is very heavy. It does use something approaching the vocal style we associate with death metal. But those of us on the right side of history... <clears throat> First wow. of my first of my wow. many controversial statements for today. <laughs> wow. Yeah, okay. we're gonna get pretty controversial today. Hopefully, we'll get some emails about this. But those of us on hey, the right, someone please write into Eric. He's so lonely. I know. I just want a friend, an angry death metal friend. <laughs> Others amongst us believe that our beloved Death, whose first album on a label, now that's an important plot point, was 1987's Scream Bloody Gore, are the originators of death metal. Now, 1985, 1987, that's obviously an important dichotomy. But, Seven Churches? Eh, Scream Bloody Gore. Now, is that a good album title or what? I mean, if that's what you want to do, sure. Now, the Brazilian extreme metal band, and yes, Brazil actually plays a pretty serious role in the early history of extreme metal. Volcano, the real serious death metal heads would will sometimes bring them out as a part of this discussion, and their 1986 debut, Bloody Vengeance, also has a song called Death Metal on it, and is perhaps worthy of being labeled as the first death metal album. But again, I side with Team Death on this case. There's a couple reasons I feel this way. The other two debut albums obviously predate Scream Bloody Gore. 1985 for Possessed, 1986 for Volcano. 
But death were a very well-known commodity in the extreme metal community via something called the tape trading scene. John, in the 1980s, were you involved in the tape trading scene? <laughs> John was not involved in the 1980s no? tape trading scene. No, I wasn't. Were you not, not a gleam in your father's eye, as they say at that uh, point? Yeah, that's a more accurate description. John is a young fella. He's a young, young fella. But you, you're aware of... true either at this point. <laughs> no, John's old, which makes me extremely old. I'm, to extreme metal, I am extreme old. Well, suffice it to say, in the 1980s, there was a big scene in underground heavy metal of just people making friends with each other across the country as sort of audio pen pals by trading demo tapes and things like that. And Death were one of the biggest bands in that scene. And over the course of 1984 through 1986, they released a wide array of rehearsal tapes and demos that were very popularly traded, beginning in 1984 with Death by Metal. We'll talk about that in a minute. Additionally, I would say that Scream Bloody Gore is just much more fully realized and much more something distinctly new. The other two, I would argue, are more along the lines of thrash metal played with less competency than some of the big bands in that field. Less competency than Metallica and Exodus and people like that. And so it is dirtier and grimier and, and, and it is pretty dark and satanic, but... I, I don't know. Scream Bloody Gore is just very clearly a death metal album. Seven Churches and Bloody Vengeance, ugh, I think, is a little more ambiguous. So that's the origin story. When we're talking about death metal, just to be clear, we're talking about a heavier, faster, and more frightening strand of the punk-influenced thrash metal that we'd associate with bands like Early Metallica. You're a big fan of Early Metallica, right? Love Early Metallica. Mm -hmm. Slayer. You love Slayer. I am aware of Slayer. He's aware that Slayer exists. We'll take it. Uh, bands like that. The most obvious difference and John's personal favorite difference between thrash metal and death metal is the use of a very distorted, what we call dirty, vocal style. This famously horrifying death metal vocal style is often known as a growl. <laughs> <laughs> You sound constipated. <laughs> you can see why I'm not a death metal singer. <laughs> These famously horrifying death metal growls, they're unpitched. They are sounds, they're timbre, they're a quality that doesn't carry the melody. It's really a lyric delivery mechanism and a textural mechanism, but not the carrier of the melodic duty. And that's a big difference from thrash metal, which will often, not always, often have some fairly dirty or distorted vocal styles, but almost always, with some very few exceptions, almost always quite clearly pitched. The biggest turnoff for nerds like John, the vocals. Would you agree that that was the biggest turnoff for you? Yeah, they don't sound healthy. I definitely don't think healthy is how I would describe them. Now, I will point out that we somewhat, I, I think sometimes we need to reevaluate our idea of virtuosity because I have tried to growl or scream death metal or black metal vocal styles, which are slightly different, and it is hard to do for any duration of time without, you know, spitting up blood. So the ability to do that night after night in a concert setting, that is not a low bar of difficulty. And we should at very least appreciate the, dare I say, virtuosity of some of the finer death metal vocalists. Dare I say that, John? You can say whatever you want. You're <laughs> wrong. <laughs> Did I mention uh, we come to blows today? Is, that, is, is this it? it? Yeah, this is the time. Okay, so we've set the stage. So it's time to meet the hero of our tale and discuss the evolution of death. 
So the first thing we need to understand is that death was, is, and always will be Chuck Schuldiner. While they were always configured as a band, there are constant, or at least very near constant lineup changes across the history of death. And Chuck was the one constant, the principal guitarist, the vocalist, frequently the bassist, and always the primary songwriter and creative force behind death. A little bit about my hero, Chuck Schuldiner. Chuck was born in 1967 on Long Island, though very early in his life, his family relocated to the future capital of world death metal, Greater Tampa Bay, Florida. Oh. Does uh, this surprise you? It does. Yeah, yeah. The beating heart, the bloody, blackened beating heart of death metal has always been in northern Florida. And a lot of that has to do with death, but the scene that grew up around death and the many, many bands in death metal that came from Florida or came to Florida, in the case of bands like Cannibal Corpse, who started off up in New York, it's just, it's massive. So the connection between Tampa Bay, Florida and death metal is undeniable and obviously undeniably strange. So, Schuldiner was born to a Jewish father and a Christian-born mother who converted to Judaism. But he was raised in a decidedly secular household. Now, the reason I bring this up is because death metal is frequently and often justifiably associated with satanic imagery and theme. Um, but this is something in which Chuck and death never showed any interest. Though the early lyrics of death tunes are definitely dark and you know, conventionally grotesque and macabre, Satanism was never a theme Chuck was very interested in. He did, however, love to write about the hypocrisy found in certain religious traditions, and particularly in the televangelists that ran oh so rampant on the TV sets of 1980s America. Generally speaking, people being shitty to each other was a favorite subject of Chuck's, and televangelists were a rather slow-moving target. Chuck grew up in a very supportive and tight-knit family, something he was able to rely on for the entirety of his career. Probably the most important event of his formative years was the death of his beloved older brother Frank in a car accident when Chuck was just nine years old. And it has been suggested that the choice of the future band name, Death, was in some small part influenced by this incident in an effort to make something beautiful out of something that was so deeply traumatic and horrible. So. Fun fact, at least from my perspective, two of Chuck's biggest formative musical influences were Kiss and Merciful Fate, the original band featuring the front man and super duper musical badass and Eric's personal hero, King Diamond. So Wait, you just called him your personal hero. I did do that. How many heroes do you have? Two, three if I count you. Aww. Yeah, I'll nice. allow it. Ah, so can you see where I might feel a certain personal kinship to this fine young Jewish gentleman who grew up loving Kiss and King Diamond. There are an alarming amount of similarities. We're basically the same person. Yeah, I've been I've been to Florida, too, many times. So, Proto-Death, under the moniker Mantis, was formed in late 1983, releasing their first demo, Death by Metal, in 1984. And this actually included one song that would make it on to Death's debut album, Evil Dead, based on the horror classic of the same name. Great song, though. The original lineup of Mantis was a trio including Chuck playing guitar and bass, second guitarist Rick Roz, who will return to the story a bit later, and drummer-vocalist Cam Lee. By 1985, the band had been officially rechristened Death, and multiple influential demo albums performed with Chuck and a whole bunch of different lineups would follow, culminating in the 1986 Mutilation Demo. 
This was the demo that got Death signed, and it featured the same duo lineup as the forthcoming official debut. That was a 19-year-old Chuck Schildener on guitars and bass, and a 17-year-old Chris Reifert on drums. So Death were signed to Combat Records and would record and release the foundational audio document of death metal, Scream Bloody Gore, on May 25th, 1987. John, the first track on the death playlist that I made for you was the opening track of Scream Bloody Gore, Infernal Death. What do you think of this particular little gem? So, I mean, you know, I liked the beginning. Right, I remember you said positive things about yeah. the start. Uh, I like the beginning. I really liked the bass sound. Is this Chuck playing bass? Yeah, here? so this is Chuck Schildener on the bass guitar, all the guitars. Yeah, I, I really liked the the not only what he was playing, but the, the tone and the sound of the bass was really cool. Mm -hmm. I hated the drumming. I hated the singing. I did like the guitar solo, though. That was also fun. Ah, yes. It's a fun guitar solo. I like that one, too. It's a very Slayer style of guitar playing. So, in all honesty, to my mind, Scream Bloody Gore is one of those raw, sort of messy classics that's maybe more important than purely great. I do think it's pretty darn great, however. But it is definitely heavy and definitely something completely removed from the classic thrash sound that we would have heard a year earlier in 1986, the year of Metallica's Master of Puppets, Slayer's Reign and Blood, Creator's Pleasure to Kill. This is just something a little bit different, a little heavier, a little edgier. In the sonic onslaught that was Scream Bloody Gore, 1987 brings about something just darker and heavier still than what we had heard the year before. You mentioned the drumming. Look, Reifert's drumming is definitely more enthusiastic than it is in time. And to be honest, Chuck's playing and his songwriting skills are still at a relatively immature level. But, I mean, these were teenagers, you know. These were kids who were onto something new, different, and exciting, and maybe they didn't quite have the technical wherewithal to execute it perfectly. But that, in some respects, that's part of the charm. You know, it is a, it's, it's a debut album and uh, an important historical document. So it's probably only fair to note that Reifert would go on to form one of the great sort of classic death metal bands, the band Autopsy. And while I don't love his playing on Scream Bloody Gore, Autopsy are pretty damn cool. But moving on, Chuck dissolved this lineup because it was untourable. The touring lineup would include former bandmate Rick Roz, and basically would involve Chuck swallowing up the entirety of the band that Roz had gone on to form, another rather excellent classic death metal band called Massacre. You like these band names? No, but, yeah. I mean, they get the point across. Yeah, good, right? There's a theme. Yeah, there's definitely a theme. So the lineup that Chuck takes on after Scream Bloody Gore is essentially Chuck plus Massacre. This leads us pretty much to the perfect audio distillation of what death metal is in the form of a considerably more slickly produced and engineered second album, Leprosy, from 1988. Now, this is the first death album engineered by the immortal Scott Burns, the engineer and producer from the legendary Morris Sound Studios of Tampa Bay, Florida, which was really the absolute epicenter of all death metal recordings in the 80s and early 90s. So at long last, let's us take a pause and take a listen to an actual death masterpiece. A little bit of death metal at its very finest, one of their most classic tunes, Pull the Plug! Hi everybody, Eric here. So while we don't have the rights to play this music, it is strongly advised that you pause now, 
take a look at the show notes and click on the link for this first excellent audio that is Pull the Plug from the album Leprosy. Check it out and then continue the podcast. Now this is death metal. This is death. It is perfect. John, what did you think? So there were parts of this one that I really enjoyed. I mean, the, the eternal caveat for me in all of these songs is that I can't stand, like physically cannot stand the singing. <laughs> Hearing it makes me not only uncomfortable, it makes me feel pain within my own body. And that is just not something I would ever seek out in any sort of listening that I would do for my own pleasure. That being said, you know, there's some cool instrumental aspects of this piece. The, mm-hmm. the intro is a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. There's the big shift, like a minute and a half in or so, to the B section that's mm-hmm. very cool. The stuff that doesn't have vocals to it is great. I enjoy it. Well, I would say that the death metal style of vocals causing you physical pain it's just a huge endorsement for the entire genre. I think that that's... But why would I want to, in my own free time for my personal pleasure and listening, seek out music that makes me feel uncomfortable? That's not the point to me. And if you like this music mm-hmm. and it makes you feel good, that's great. I'm not telling you a crazy person. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying you're wrong. <laughs> I, I feel okay with that. I don't feel like punching you in the face quite yet. So that's good. I feel like right, we really... I'll, we're, I'll we're, push further. Yeah, well, I'm feeling good about things. So, look, Leprosy is a vast improvement on Scream Bloody Gore in every possible way. I know that not every single death fan will agree with that, but to me, this is just so much more refined and so much more just sophisticated than the material on the fun but sort of scrappy debut album. The lineup here is Chuck... Rick Ross, who we've already mentioned, the drummer is Bill Andrews, and to me, he absolutely kills on this album. John, I don't think you're such a huge fan of the drumming on this track. Again, let me be clear. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's not good drumming. Like, what he's doing on the drums is technically impressive. I just don't much understand the point of just constantly beating everything consistently at the same speed through the entire duration of the song. Well, now, I would point out that one of the things that death do really well is sharp textural changes. And you hear that in this song. So Sure, there's the bit where he goes from pounding the bass drum and toms to pounding the bass drum and cymbals. I would agree that is a big textural shift. I, I kind of want to punch John in the face. Now, <laughs> now let, me, let me offer you a fun fact. Bassist Terry Butler is credited for playing bass on this album. However... Apparently he had something of a panic attack in the studio, I think because of how incredibly perfectionist Chuck was in the studio. And in the end, he asked Chuck to play bass on the album, and Chuck indeed handles all the bass playing duties on Leprosy. So, very clearly on this track, we get all the elements of death metal. It's visceral. There's just violent physically intense riffage in the guitars. We get this precise incandescent musicianship that just turns on an absolute dime. We get the dark lyrical themes. This particular song, probably unsurprisingly, is about euthanasia. And, of course, the requisite throaty, growled, and mostly unpitched vocals from Chuck. 
We also get this fantastic shout-along chorus, which is not something that we always associate with death metal, and is really something that death and Chuck's songwriting prowess accounts for, which is, pull the plug! And I guarantee you, anytime they play that, every single person in that there theater was screaming along, growling along, etc. Chuck is real, real good at the memorable material in these difficult musical contexts. And everything here is just very, very snappy and tightly constructed. We also get to hear the dawn of this really complex song structure that Chuck will tend to favor. We've got a verse, we've got a pre-chorus, we've got a chorus. All of that makes up what I would call the A superstructure. It's a big chunk of stuff that happens. And then we get the instrumental material that John liked, as well as a bridge. This is the B material, the contrasting material, and what Chuck will almost always do is bring back the A material, what we call a ternary form. In this really complex music, it's, you know, there's something to be said for these nice, clear structures where stuff comes back. In chunks, the A superstructure comes back. We get the main riff, we get the, the verse, we get the pre-chorus, and we get the chorus again at the end. And that, even if this music is challenging to follow, you know, you can follow along with it. It can make sense. It's not just, as old fogies and John might say, shrill, terrible noise. Is that, is that what you said earlier? Yeah, yeah, sure. I don't remember saying that, but no, I'll I own it. I don't think you said that. It, it also doesn't hurt that the, uh, the riff and it's just absolutely killer. And the opening riff of this song is just very memorable. And for that reason, and the, the Shadow Long Chorus, this was actually frequently a, a closer in Death's live sets. This is one of their, their real classic live pieces. So the moral of the story is, although this is incredibly heavy music, I know it's not for everyone, it is really freaking good. It, it's fun. It may not be easy fun, but there is fun to be had here. But we're really just at the start of this journey. So now we must begin our exploration of the evolution. John, you ready? No, but we're gonna do it anyway. We, we just don't have a choice. We're strapped in. We can't turn around now. So, here's where I'm going to admit to being somewhat naughty in the construction of this episode. While I did make that hour-long playlist for John, I did not include a single track from 1990's Spiritual Healing. This was a very hard decision. It's not one I took lightly. I just knew that I had to do some amount of paring down. Otherwise, John was going to uh, quit the podcast and never speak to me again. And this, this was the album that I decided I had to sacrifice. Now, for the record, spiritual healing does mark a couple of important steps in the evolution of death. First and foremost, guitarist Rick Ross was fired after leprosy, and he was replaced by the totally crazy, but also utterly brilliant, death metal virtuoso James Murphy. Now, on spiritual healing, Murphy's extraordinarily melodic style of lead playing really opens the door to a new level of surface melodic beauty in Death's work, and it's going to really augment their sonic palette. This album, however, we're really only going to hear that in the guitar solos rather than in the larger song structures. Now, additionally, probably the most profound switch is a complete departure from anything resembling macabre traditional death metal lyrics. On spiritual healing, these themes are replaced now with a focus more on religious hypocrisy and, and even complex political issues abortion, the death penalty. It's scary stuff, but definitely far removed from the supernatural gore and the horror movie tropes of early death and generally most death metal lyrics. So, Spiritual Healing is a really good album. I like it a lot, but to my mind, it is the only death album that doesn't follow the very definite pattern of being appreciably stronger than everything that came before. 
Now, I know that there's some that may very stringently disagree, but I think that this is definitely a weaker album than Leprosy. And to my mind, Chuck seems to be in the process of figuring it all out, but he's not quite there yet. So, the aftermath of spiritual healing, the tour that followed, is particularly crucial and is going to mark a real pivot in Death's career. They were signed to open for the absolutely magnificent German thrash metal band Creator. John, you, you're, you're a Creator fan, no? I don't know Creator. Oh, I, Creator. I do my very best to avoid things from Germany. Oh, okay. Well, that's probably a good policy, actually. Now, they were going to open for Creator on what would have been for them a really big European tour, but for these reasons that have always been, uh, to my mind, decidedly obscure, Chuck pulled himself out of this tour. I am personally of the purely speculative opinion that there were some definite mental health issues involved. I've never seen it said explicitly, but Chuck pulled himself out, but the rest of the band, since the contracts had already been signed, they felt that they were really legally obligated to still go on the tour, and so they did, performing as death without Chuck Schuldiner across Europe. This led to Chuck firing every single person in that version of the band immediately upon their return to the U.S. <laughs> the good news <laughs> is that serious? fired them all. Because they went and did the oh, tour? Yeah, yeah, he was very angry. He was very angry. He felt that he had been betrayed. There was even some funny stuff where he was like about halfway through the tour. He was like, okay, I got my shit together now. I'd like to come and join the tour. But apparently the creator management was pissed at him and they were like, no, we don't want you. And so the, the death continued. So Chuck definitely had some hard feelings, I think, about the band touring. At, you know, death was his baby. And this, this group of people touring as death, I believe they used a roadie as a replacement. And uh, yeah, it was just, I, I don't know what they sounded like live, but I'm sure it was a bit of a mess. So quick question, John, do you feel like I did you a disservice by not giving you the opportunity to hear any of the wonderful material from Spiritual Healing? No. You're happy about it, aren't you? Yes. Yeah, I thought you would be. But again, if you disagree with Eric, please write him a strongly worded email. Sternly worded emails will make us friends for life if they're about death. See what I did there? That was wordplay. Okay, so now is where we get serious and where death truly become the greatest band in all the land. Death's next act would be one of the most monumental in the history of heavy metal. And Chuck took a huge step forward artistically with 1991's unspeakably brilliant album, Human. Before moving on, let's pause again and take a listen to one more wonderful death track. One of the most important tracks in the entire death metal canon, Lack of Cop Reaction. All right. It's time for another pause so that you can hear the amazing, beautiful lack of comprehension from the album Human. Check it out. In your show notes, you'll have a link. Go get them, tigers. Ah! <laughs> so good! So thinking back, this was probably the first death track that I heard of many that truly made my jaw just drop. So John, how did you feel about this absolutely perfect gem of a song? I was confused in the beginning. Mm. It was a new sound based on your playlist, uh -huh. which felt very out of character. And just as I was beginning to like comprehend and understand, they got into their normal crap. And then it just <laughs> was loud and obnoxious and I hated it. <laughs> I don't know whether to cry or bite you. Um, <laughs> look, let's look at this objectively. 
without a doubt, the already impressive quality of the playing that you had heard and that we know up to this point has been amped up considerably. This is thanks to Chuck once more swallowing up a large portion of a truly great extant band. In this case, it was the guitarist and the drummer of the uber-progressive death metal band Cynic, that being Paul Masvidal and Sean Reinert. And additionally, he brought in the virtuoso, oft-fretless bassist Steve DiGiorgio, who was borrowed from the thrash metal band from California, Sadus. This is an absolute rogues gallery of killer musicianship, and everyone here ups the game of everyone else, including Chuck's songwriting, which as we just heard, John, has never been sharper or smarter. So in lack of comprehension, as John mentioned, we open with this somewhat surprising and cerebral bass-driven intro. We do have a new texture. We have this whole new idea that I would say is not traditionally associated with death metal. We then explode into what is, to my mind, one of the greatest verse riffs of all time. It is just so catchy and anthemic and exciting. What is catchy about it? They're just going <laughs> and then for less than half a second, one guitar player goes Right? Oh! Academy, fear strikes down. So after the great verse riff, we get new rhythmic ideas in both the pre-chorus and then in the chorus before, now this is important, before melting into just an absolutely gorgeous guitar lead break. Now, wow, the lead break in this tune is just one of those death moments that makes my heart melt, it makes me feel a little emotional. It's just beautiful, beautiful music making. And the level of that music making here is just crazy. The sea change in lyrical content also shouldn't be overstated when we're talking about human. We're a million miles from scream bloody gore, as Chuck now begins to get very introspective in his lyrical content. John, read me these lyrics. A condemning fear strikes down things they cannot understand, an excuse to cover up weaknesses that lie within lies, laying our guilt and pain on people that had no part in the molding of a life that creates its destruction. Lies. Right before your very eyes, a reflection of the mistakes to the end, you will deny your part in the demise of a life Lack of comprehension, thriving on your cliché, compelled by self-resentment. Those are not lyrics about baby-eating demons, I think you'll agree. That is accurate. Yeah, so my understanding is that this song is actually a reflection on people's <clears throat> misunderstanding and prejudgment of heavy metal music and culture. Specifically, this is actually a, a reaction to the case in the early 90s of Judas Priest being accused of causing two teenage boys to try to kill them. Well, one successfully and one semi-successfully to kill themselves. You familiar with this? I'm vaguely case? familiar with that. Yeah, they, they were acquitted and the entire thing was pretty nonsensical. But this is Chuck's reaction to this general sort of societal response to heavy metal and particularly in the 80s and 90s, people assuming that all the heavy metal artists and fans were demented murderers of, of joy. When it's in fact John, who is the demented murderer of joy. <laughs> I was just going to say, no, that's me. <laughs> ah, it's so true. It's also really important to say that this, was this, this song was actually Death's first MTV video. 
Wow. Yeah. Can you can you believe that? This song was played on MTV, I think pretty much exclusively on Headbangers Ball, which was the late night Saturday night heavy metal show. But this is obviously a point where death are starting to become, I don't think mainstream is the appropriate term, but certainly more mainstream adjacent than previous. We also get a decided visual change in the band's logo. John, I, I've texted you the various forms of the logo about 78 times since we started talking about this You are this not episode. exaggerating. I, I may be understating you, you might actually be. Uh, so you, you can tell, you know, the sort of uh, upside-down cross and the spider webs and just everything about the earlier logo is tamped down and sort of made a little bit more, I don't know, mature in the updated logo. Does that seem like a fair statement? Sure. Yeah. You know, death, they're changing. You know, Chuck is growing up. The, the, the band is, is just growing up along with him. We also see a change in human's cover art, which is a lot more cerebral than the sort of garish, visceral imagery we saw on the first three album covers. You know, I, uh, John and I were looking earlier at some of the album covers. You know, they were all gaudy and the sort of skulls and just scary, scary looking stuff. Let me see if I can bring this up for you real quick. So John and I are looking at a very tiny image from Scream Bloody Gore. You can see there's like a, a skeletal figure on a throne and he's got like a goblet and there's it's just very it's very death metal-y leprosy even probably more so it's got this like disgusting figure barobed figure a funny story i remember being oh i don't know like i guess i was probably around 11 when leprosy came out and i very vividly remember having a heavy metal magazine and seeing an advertisement a full page advertisement for leprosy and being like whoa like these guys are scary and, like i was genuinely a little unnerved by that image I was 11, so I think it's only fair. But by comparison, if you look at the cover of Human, we can see we actually have skeletons, but they're definitely a lot more, they're, they're, they're like anatomical skeletons. They're not scary, barobed skull figures. They're people's skeletons. It's just a much more sort of intellectual image as opposed to what we saw before. Does that seem somewhat fair based yeah, on what you're saying? I'd say that's an accurate assessment. Yeah, we definitely have a real sea change from here on out in Death's approach to the making of music and their albums, and they just are gonna get better and better. This is an album that actually charts somewhat. It goes up to number 34 on the Billboard up-and-coming artist chart called Heat Seekers. And it's, it's really this, we're seeing here Death becoming about as well-known as a death metal band could hope to be. Death are worldwide the most, they've sold the most albums of any death metal band. Now, in America, you'll be pleased to note that Cannibal Corpse have actually outsold death. You're fond of them, right? No. No. I'm actually not fond of Cannibal Corpse either. I think they're pretty terrible. But Americans are dumb, I guess. Death is clearly the superior band, and thankfully the, uh, the rest of the world appreciates that. But this is really death becoming something adjacent to mainstream in the heavy metal world for the very heavy style of music they play, which despite getting more cerebral and refined, is still pretty damn heavy. So John, I gave you two tracks from Human, this one and also the opening track, Flattening of Emotions. Were you able to hear any distinct musical or thematic evolution between those tracks and the material from Scream Bloody Gore and Leprosy? I will be perfectly honest, by the time we got to this point in my listening of this playlist, uh, I was pretty much completely numb as a human being and no longer able to absorb anything in any way. It's funny, because I would describe you as numb as a human being generally. <laughs> so, I, I, don't know, 
don't know that I see where you, the difference would be obvious. <laughs> Gee, thanks. <laughs> the, the simple truth of the matter is death metal's a lot. And the ability to listen to music turned up to 11, to borrow a phrase from Spinal Tap, constantly, and hear the many subtleties that are built into death metal, and particularly death's brand of death metal, it's not a uh, a priori skill. It definitely takes some time and some effort. The next two death albums are truly magnificent. And I'm of the opinion that each one of these is better than the last. 1993's Individual Thought Patterns is particularly dear to me as one of my favorite humans on this earth. King Diamond guitarist and co-songwriter Andy LaRoque was brought in by Chuck to play many of the guitar leads. Additionally, one of the greatest heavy metal drummers of all time, Big Gene Hoagland, also joined Death. What a band. What a flippin' band. Now, this time out, the musicianship and the songwriting are even sharper and even wilder than what we had heard on Human. Chuck really plays with his songwriting forms on this one, which is by far the most melodic and progressive of all the Death albums. This is some densely intellectual music and can be a challenge for novice listeners, even death metal fans who are not familiar with death. But it truly is a masterpiece. And in many respects, Individual Thought Patterns is possibly my own favorite death album. It is the sound of a Chuck with no Fs left to give, and he is fully embracing his own unique muse at this point. As the lyrics on the song Out of Touch say, Trapped in a lost world of brutality, so weak are the ones that must rely on shock to push this so-called force that inspires their call. To be extreme, so it seems, is a mental crutch. Now this is a serious shot off the bow of death metal and death metal fans who think that everything has to sound like Scream Bloody Gore or Cannibal Corpses Eaten Back to Life. You a fan of that album? No. <laughs> or, or any of the traditional conventions of the genre that Chuck essentially created but was ready to expand well beyond by this time in his career. Chuck is a zillion miles from the conventions of the genre he created, but he still manages to stretch the boundaries rather than just leaving death metal entirely behind. And to me, this is a beautiful thing to behold. John, from this album, I played you or I provided you with Trapped in a Corner. How cool was that song? Again, this was another one that I liked mm -hmm. uh, as much as I liked any of this, which is, you know, contains my constant caveat that the singing and the drums were infuriating. But, you know, the groove in what I'm calling the B section mm -hmm. was something that I very much enjoyed. I like generally the sound of the bass and the guitars. They play very well. The stuff mm -hmm. they're doing is very cool. It's it's put together in a in a nice way. Uh, I, would, I would go so far, and maybe, I don't know if you're there yet, but I would go so far as to say some of that melodic material in the bass and the guitar is beautiful at this point. I mean, there is some really well, you know, beautiful everybody stuff. defines beauty in their own way. <laughs> so I can't necessarily argue with you there. I define beauty as uh, death. Death is beauty. Look, this is possibly my favorite death song, and the Andy LaRoque guitar solo is just, it's just so good. It's just so damn good. It was really hard. You know, I, I only chose really three songs for us to play, which is quite a bit for our podcast. And so I, I did choose a Lack of Comprehension over this one just because Human, it really marks the beginning of the sea change. But, oh, this was a hard one not to play. So everyone go out and listen to Trapped in a Corner. Such a good song. Such a good song. Anyhow, this album was followed by Symbolic in 1995, and this brought death a new guitarist and a bassist, relatively unknown but brilliant, Bobby Koble and Kelly Conlon. 
Now, symbolic manages to continue death's evolution, but it does also rein in some of the experimental excesses found on individual thought patterns. And I often use symbolic as a pretty perfect entry point into death metal for the uninitiated. That said, there are definitely some old school death metal types who would say that by this point, death had become something other than death metal. I understand the temptation. Symbolic is pretty far removed from bands like Cannibal Corpse or Deicide, but I heartily disagree. I just think that Chuck was bringing death metal to new and incredibly exciting places with this material. Now, John, I put the title track Symbolic, and I also put the song Crystal Mountain from this album onto your playlist. Any thoughts on these tracks and their representation of death as a steadily evolving, brilliant music-making machine? Okay, so Symbolic, there was some fun metrical stuff happening in uh -huh. this one. There were, there were some cool meter changes. This was the album where they discovered faders and were able to just like get out of songs without an abrupt shutoff. I love the abrupt shutoffs, but yeah, there is there is some fading going on in this album. That is that is true, and it's nice, you know, changing things up, right? That's great. I, you know, I'll take the fade out to just the abrupt stop. <laughs> <laughs> so, look, by the end of the 1990s, Chuck was really feeling confined by this whole death metal label, and also by the name Death. The band name Death kind of puts you in a, uh, a corner. He was trapped in a corner, you might say. Um, and I think that... Are you the, proud of that? I am, I am, I am somewhat proud of that. I, I think that the, the, the teenager that came up with the band name Death and the adult, mature artist that Chuck was by the late 90s probably were, were quite different people. And Chuck was also frustrated by the musical conservatism of his listening public. I mean, death metal may not be a conservative musical style aesthetically, but the people who listen to it tend to not like change very much. I think this is probably always true of almost any genre. People just suck. Well, that's fair. Yeah. yeah, I'll agree with that. Yeah, and people, you know, generally our talented artists are probably a lot better at knowing how to push boundaries than most of their listening public are at reacting to those boundary-pushing decisions. So Chuck was just ready to move on, and he wanted to start just completely fresh and in an entirely new direction with a heavy metal project that he called Control Denied. However, when he signed this new act to a new label, moving on from combat to nuclear blast, it was under the condition that he make just one last death album. And Chuck agreed to this. And holy crap, did he ever not phone that last death album in. In fact, John, are you ready for Eric's most controversial statement to date of our Still Young podcast? I cannot wait to hear what you think is a controversial opinion. 1998's the Sound of Perseverance gets Eric's vote for the single greatest heavy metal album of all time. What do you think about that? I've listened to like two full albums and ten or so of this Ugh. band's song. I have no idea what those words mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, ignorance is bliss, right? I feel blissful. Yeah, you look blissful. I know um, I do. It's great. It's all the death, I think. It's good for your skin. <laughs> Look, I, honestly, I don't think music gets better than this. I just don't. The Sound of Perseverance, it synthesizes everything death has done from Scream Bloody Gore through Symbolic, and it also improves the songwriting and the playing to just these, you like this, death-defying plateaus um, that few other artists have ever reached. Chuck had put together a completely new band at this point, because he was trying to switch from death to control denied, and that consisted of guitarist Shannon Hamm, drummer Richard Christie, 
who, in today's oddest news of the podcast segment, eventually went on to work a regular gig as an on-air crank caller for the Howard Stern Show. Is that a fun fact? That is a weird career shift. It's very strange, and the story of how that all happened is very strange, too. Let's say he's a hell of a draw. And the bassist, Scott Clendenin. These guys were not tried-and-true commodities, as Chuck had usually worked with in the past, and I actually have no idea how he put together a band that was this good, comprised of all relatively unknown musicians, but he did. This is one of those albums it's hard to excise anyone, or in this case, two tracks from. It really works best as a totality flowing elegantly from the opening track, Scavenger of Human Sorrow, through the big finish, a stellar cover of Judas Priest's classic Painkiller, featuring far and away Chuck's finest vocal performance. However, let's us stop for a moment, respect the death, and listen to one of the all-time great death metal anthems, the monumental Spirit Crusher from the sound of perseverance. All right. It's another one of them times where you stop listening to me. You pause this podcast. You click on the link in the show notes and you rock out to Spirit Crusher from the sound of perseverance. Go and do it. How was that? That was painful. <laughs> oh, I just, uh, to see that song performed live and to hear Chuck do that chorus, oh, oh, I have sprained my soul. That's so damn good. Look, first of all, only Chuck can make death metal songs in six work. It's just, it's just something that Chuck is able to do that I feel like no other death metal artist manages. God love him for it. The tempo changes from the verse going into the bridge and then back into just the single greatest chorus riff in all of death metal history. I mean, come on! John, has your spirit been crushed? Yes! Yes! Mission accomplished. Look, the elephant in the room when we talk about this album and a source of some amount of controversy within death metal is Chuck's vocal choices on The Sound of Perseverance. On this album, he's really taking a big artistic leap into this shrill, biting vocal style that is generally something that would be more associated with black metal than the manly growl of death metal that we've all come to expect. Now, I love it. I think the vocals on this album are transcendent. I've already mentioned how just incredible the death version of Painkiller is that ends that. You know, if you can imagine Chuck taking on probably Rob Halford's most difficult vocal performance in his own unique way. But that said, it's a big turnoff for a lot of death metal folks. I think Chuck, especially on this album, is just simply the cat's pajamas. But John, I have to ask, are you a growl guy or a shriek guy? Uh, you know, if I had to pick between only those two, I would choose to be a mute. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So instrumental tracks are your, uh, your, your preference. I'm here for that. Mm -hmm. On this track, we get the usual complex song forms, balancing repetition with contrast, with so much wonderful, memorable material, both vocal and instrumental. Great riffs, gorgeous solos, we get these harmonized lead breaks, we get all sorts of wild mixed meter, we get these texture changes left and right. 
we have a very progressive but very controlled clean and logical collection of ideas here. This is mature art being made by a fully mature artist. It all makes my heart melt, makes me go weak in the knees. I just love this song. I love everything on this album. And I think anyone who feels otherwise is a big fat dummy. Fair? Probably not. Mm, fair. So, look, we should probably start to wrap this tale up. And unfortunately, like so many tales, this one does come to a totally heartbreaking conclusion. So, in 1999, Chuck officially put death on hiatus and released the first Control Denied album, The Fragile Art of Existence. Now, I have complicated feelings about Control Denied. It is essentially the same band we heard on the brilliant Sound of Perseverance, with the addition of Tim Amar on vocals instead of Chuck. And there is definitely much to love about The Fragile Art of Existence, but to be totally honest, I just find the overwrought power metal style vocals of Tim Amar pretty off-putting, and I like but don't love the Control Denied album. Sadly, also in 1999, after experiencing some odd symptoms and difficulty with properly controlling his hands, Chuck Schuldiner was diagnosed with brain cancer. Now, an impressive variety of artists from all sorts of genres, including people like Dave Grohl, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Ozzy Osbourne, and others helped raise money for Chuck's medical care and treatment because, like so many an artist in this broken country of ours, Chuck had no health insurance. Ugh. Now, despite the financial assistance of the heavy metal and alt-rock communities, Chuck grew increasingly ill, and on December 13th, 2001, Chuck Schuldiner died at the age of only 34. I'm going to take a break for waves of emotion. John, what are your thoughts on this? What, on his death? Yeah. I mean, that's tragic. It's sad. 34? Yeah. Yeah. We were talking, John and I, over coffee not too long ago about Franz Schubert. Yep. Amongst others. Schubert died at the age of 31, and despite that, he is remembered as one of the greatest musical masters in the Western concert music tradition. However... I always wonder what could have been had Schubert lived to full artistic maturity. Chuck Schuldiner is also someone who I think has become acknowledged as one of the greatest metal artists of all time, but what, what could have been? What would have happened if Chuck was still alive, still with us, still evolving and making fantastic music? I don't know, but alas, that was not meant to be. However, from 1984, the Mantis debut demo, Death by metal, through 1999, the Control Denied debut, The Fragile Art of Existence, we got to experience some of the most incredible, boundary-breaking music that has ever been recorded. If you have never taken the time before this to experience the music of Chuck Schuldiner and Death, I hope that this episode will inspire you to put on some of this difficult but gorgeous music and drink deep from the cup of death. John, any last thoughts to share? If you like this, that's great. I'm very happy that you can find joy in this music. If you are reticent about it, I would encourage you to just try and get past the singing. Because there are some really cool instrumental aspects to these pieces. 
Look at you finding the positivity I'm here. I'm just saying, like, the. Are you going to play that last piece on the playlist as the outgoing? Yeah, thing? so we're going to conclude replacing our usual theme music as a tribute to Chuck and an opportunity to hear one more little bit of music. We're going to play just the absolutely gorgeous instrumental Voice of the Soul from The Sound of Perseverance. John, you, you really liked this song, right? This was everything that I was looking for out of this music because there was no singing and there were no drums. <laughs> and it is freaking beautiful. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can find us on Facebook. Just search out Heavy Metal 101 Podcast or via email at heavymetal101podcast at gmail.com. And really do please write in. Eric is very lonely. I'm a sad person. I'm really, really sad. But that having been said, I have death. We all have death. And I wish peace, love, death, and heavy metal to everyone. Here I am one last time reminding you that instead of playing the usual theme music out, we want you to look at your show notes and click on the link to the absolutely gorgeous Voice of the Soul as a beautiful tribute to the great Chuck Schuldiner. Take a listen. Think about life, the universe, and everything. And mwah! We'll see you next time.